You're listening to RUF at UT Podcast. You're never so bad that you're beyond the reach of God's grace. And you are never so good that you're beyond the need of God's grace. For more information, go to www.utk.ruf.org. really one of my favorite passages in the whole book. I wanted to, I wanted to begin with, a, with an interesting little factoid about this book. There are 404 verses in the book of Revelation, and there are 500, over 500 allusions or references to other parts of Scripture. And what that tells you is, uh, here is a book that does not really give you any new information that the rest of the Bible doesn't give you. In fact, you could just sort of delete the book of Revelation from the Bible and you would have everything that you would need to understand about God and sin and salvation and the gospel. And so really the question is, why is this at the end of the Bible? Why is this even included? And I think here's why. I think it's because God knows that you don't just relate to him by understanding. Like after 65 books... You don't need more theological data. So what Revelation comes to you as, it doesn't come to you as theological data. It comes to you as images to give you an experience, an impression. This is why we've been saying that it takes the theology of the Bible and puts it in picture form. It's it's theology for visual learners. And so we we get to this passage tonight that is filled with these really... um, pretty vivid and disturbing images, but I think it's so helpful because it puts images to what could be your experience. So with that in mind, let me read it. We're going to read all of chapter 12, and then we'll consider it together. It says this. And a great sign appeared in heaven, a woman clothed with the sun, with the moon under her feet, and on her head a crown of 12 stars. She was pregnant and was crying out in birth pains and the agony of giving birth. And another sign appeared in heaven. Behold, a great red dragon with seven heads and ten horns, and on his head seven diadems. His tail swept down a third of the stars of heaven and cast them to the earth. And the dragon stood before the woman who was about to give birth, so that when she bore her child, he might devour it. She gave birth to a male child, one who is to rule all the nations with an iron, with a rod of iron. But her child was caught up to God and to his throne. And the woman fled into the wilderness where she has a place prepared by God in which she is to be nourished for 1,260 days. Now war arose in heaven, Michael and his angels fighting against the dragon, and the dragon and his angels fought back. But he was defeated. And there was no longer any place for them in heaven. And the great dragon was thrown down, that ancient serpent who is called the devil and Satan, the deceiver of the whole world. He was thrown down to the earth and his angels were thrown down with him. And I heard a loud voice in heaven saying, Now the salvation and the power and the kingdom of our God and the authority of his Christ have come. For the accuser of our brothers has been thrown down, who accuses them day and night before our God. And they have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb and by the word of their testimony, for they loved not their lives even unto death. Therefore rejoice, O heavens, and you who dwell in them. But woe to you, O earth and sea, for the devil has come down to you in great wrath, because he knows that his time is short. 
And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman who had given birth to the male child. But the woman was given the two wings of the great eagle so that she might fly from the serpent into the wilderness to the place where she is to be nourished for a time and times and half a time. The serpent poured water like a river out of his mouth after the woman to sweep her away with a flood. But the earth came to the help of the woman and the earth opened its mouth and swallowed the river so that the dragon that the dragon had poured from his mouth. Then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. This is God's word for us tonight. Let me pray before we look at this, okay? Let's pray. Father, we're grateful for your word, even when we read things like this that's pretty confusing or disturbing and don't really know what to do with, and would ask that you would meet us now in this place with your spirit to really soften up our hearts so that the truth of your word would pierce us and transform us. Give us eyes to see uh, new things, give us ears to hear deep truths, and have our hearts be malleable to spiritual reality tonight. And we would pray all of this in Jesus' name. Amen. Uh, I've talked with some of you recently about the Lord of the Rings trilogy. Not The Hobbit, but the actual Lord of the Rings thing. And uh, if you remember from the movie uh, The Two Towers, uh, there's a scene in there that was not included in the book. So it's an added scene uh, that took place. Um, it, it was basically an inner dialogue that Gollum slash Smeagol had within himself, even though it was kind of out loud. And so, you know, the camera kind of pans back and forth. And I want to read you what, was, what this conversation with himself looked like. I'm not going to, I'm not going to, um, impersonate him as I go switch back and forth. Um, unless you want me to, no, I'm not, I'm not going to, I'm not going to do it. (laughs) Okay. Um, so Gollum, Gollum begins like this, you know, Gollum is this little sinister little thing. And he, uh, he says this, (laughs) he says, (laughs) <laughs> we, I'm just going to do it. We, uh, we wants it. I'm not doing it. We needs it. Must have the precious. They stole it from us. <laughs> Sneaky little hobbitses. Wicked, tricksy, false. No, not master. Yes, precious. First they will cheat you, hurt you, lie. Master's my friend. You don't have any friends. Nobody likes you. And he covers his ears and he says, not listening, not listening. You're a liar and a thief. No. Murderer. Go away. Go away. I hate you. I hate you. Where would you be without me? Now, the reason I start like that is because I think if you're a Christian tonight, that dialogue should feel somewhat familiar. That there really is this part of you that's drawn to doing things and thinking things and saying things that a whole nother part of you says, no, that's wrong, that's, that's screwed up. Why am I doing this? Why do I want this? So there really is part of you, for example, that really does, really does believe if you're a Christian, I should not be a control freak. I really should learn to trust and be dependent on the Lord. And yet there is this other part of you that's like, and yet I must have, I must have every detail of my life planned and organized. 
One part of you, if you're a Christian, really is like, I do not want to cross these sexual boundaries with my girlfriend or with my boyfriend, and yet there's this whole other part of you that's like, but I so desperately want to. And so here's the question. If you're in Christ, how do you explain that tension where there really is like two parts of you battling? Well, the Bible would describe that as warfare. And it uses the language, as we saw in this passage tonight, of warfare. That if you are a Christian tonight, you are, in, you are automatically enlisted and drafted in a war simply by virtue of the fact that you've chosen to follow Jesus. And this passage, I think, is so unbelievably helpful because it, it puts pictures and images and ideas to help explain that experience by telling us really two things. By telling us about the reality of the war and then the nature of that war. So those are the two kind of big ideas that I want to look at from this passage tonight. The reality of the war, the fact that it's going on, and then the nature of it, what it actually kind of looks like in practice. So let's kind of get into it. What is the uh, reality of the war? And to kind of make sense of what I mean by this, there, there are three central characters in this passage that you kind of got to make sense of, otherwise the passage is just as weird. And that's the woman, the dragon, and the child. So let me just sort of give you their bios one at a time. First, let's start with the woman. If you notice in verse 1, she is described as a sign. Now, signs, by definition, point to a reality beyond themselves. So she's representing something else. And what does this woman represent? Well, we see that she's clothed with the sun, and there's a moon under her feet, and she has a crown of 12 stars on her head. This is all language taken directly out of Genesis 37, to describe the nation of Israel. So very clearly, here is this picture of this woman, gloriously arrayed, that you could say represents, broadly speaking, the people of God, both before and after Jesus. One way to put it is to say she just, she, she's an image of the church. Okay, so what about the dragon? Let's look at verse 3. Again, the, the dragon is described as a sign. It's not, there's not like a literal dragon somewhere out there. This is all figurative. He's, this image represents something else. What is it? Verse 9 is one, of those, is one of the few times in the book of Revelation where the author kind of throws you a bone and tells you, here's what the image means. And he just flat out tells you, this represents the ancient serpent called the devil or Satan. Okay? And what's the description of this you know, of Satan. Uh, verse 3, he's red, which is the color of blood and death. It says he has seven heads, which is this image of complete uh, authority and intelligence. It says he has ten horns. This is just immense power, immense strength. Uh, seven diadems, which means he's incredibly influential. And so here you have this really figurative, imaginative, creative picture of Satan. That he's this monstrous, ferocious, giant, horrible thing. So big that his tail sweeps a, a third of the stars out of the sky. Again, not literally true, but this is just sort of giving you the impression. This is a big, scary, monstrous foe. And he's like crouched in front of this woman as she's waiting to give birth to devour the child. And you think, okay, here's this child who's this vulnerable, helpless little thing. He doesn't, he doesn't stand a chance. Now, before we look at the child real quick, I, I do feel like we've got to kind of hit pause and talk about the devil for a second. Because I know some of you are thinking, like, really? The devil? Like, this is 2015, and we're talking about the devil. Uh, is it true that Christians believe in like a real, personal, intelligent, spiritually evil entity out there somewhere called the devil. 
Yes. That's what Christians believe. That's what I do. That's what I believe. And, and, and man, I wish I had like a whole night just to sort of argue this case for you. But let me give you sort of two reasons real quick why, why I personally believe this is true. The first reason is that the Bible speaks about this figure called Satan, the devil, all over it. It's not just like this spooky, weird thing in Revelation. It's like from beginning to end. Satan shows up in like the third chapter of the Bible and he's all the way through it. Now, I realize not everybody in this room believes the Bible, but you just need to know people like me, Christians who believe the Bible, he's in there. Jesus himself believed in a personal real devil. And the second reason I would say is this, is that I think it's completely logical and it's completely rational that if you believe in God, or if you even are open to the idea that God exists, it's perfectly rational to say if there are good spiritual personalities out there, it's certainly reasonable to think that there are bad spiritual realities out there. So I don't want, to, I don't want you to make the, the mistake that um, you know, Kaiser Soze from The Usual Suspects tells us to, you know, encourage us. He, you know, Kaiser Soze in the movie, here's what he says. The greatest trick the, the devil ever pulled was convincing the world he didn't exist. Wish we could talk more about that. But there he is. He's the dragon. And here's this dragon, this person of Satan, figuratively pictured, waiting to consume this child. And who is this child now? Well, if you notice, John, the author, does not refer to the child as a sign. He is the real thing. Here's this real male child who is born, and he is described as, quote, one who is to rule all the nations with a rod of iron. That is a direct quote from Psalm chapter 2, which the rest of the New Testament references over and over to connect the dots for you that this is talking about the Messiah, Jesus. So here's the picture. you got the woman as the church. you got the dragon as Satan. you got the child as Jesus. And notice, really before we kind of get into the action here, this scene does not take place way off in the distant future. This is actually, again, stopping the tape and rewinding it to the beginning. And it, and it looks at Christmas Eve 2,000 years ago. It zooms in on what happened Christmas Eve right before Jesus was born 2,000 years ago. And here's where the action picks up. In verses 5 through 11, it basically tells you the story. That Satan has all along been wanting to destroy the person in the work of Jesus. But with Jesus' birth and life and death and resurrection and ascension... Satan is defeated and he is overthrown. Six different times in verses 9 through 13, it tells you Satan is thrown down. It says he's thrown down. He's thrown down. Verse 8, he is defeated. Verse 11, he is conquered. Jesus has defeated the dragon. And so here's the question then. If that is true, if Satan has been defeated by Jesus, why then is there still all of this evil and struggle and horrible stuff in your life and in mine? And here's how Revelation answers this question in this passage. That even though Satan is defeated, he is going down swinging. That even though he he has lost the battle, he is in desperation trying to get in as many blows as he can before Jesus ultimately crushes his skull in. So he is dethroned, but he is not annihilated. And who does the dragon choose to set his sights on to go after next? Look at verse 13. And when the dragon saw that he had been thrown down to the earth, he pursued the woman. Who's that? That's you. If you're a Christian tonight. 
Verse 17, then the dragon became furious with the woman and went off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Satan knows that he cannot touch Jesus, so who he goes after is his church. You, if you're a Christian. Now, <laughs> I know this sounds like crazy, weird, spooky, bizarro, but this is kind of revelation. This is kind of what you get. But it's not, in fact, it's not just revelation. If you look at the rest of the Bible, 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 8 says this. He prowls around like a roaring lion seeking for someone to devour. And that's you. Look, I don't know uh, if you've seen the show The Office. But uh, one of my favorite threads that's kind of, that runs throughout the whole thing is Michael's hatred of Toby. You know, the, the, the HR guy. And there are so many amazing quotes and scenes of him just just bashing Toby. And so I compiled a couple of these, and I want to read you a few. So here's Michael talking to Toby. He says this, Why are you the way that you are? Honestly, every time I try to do something fun or exciting, you make it not that way. I hate so much about the things that you choose to be. (laughs) Here's another one. Toby is an HR, which technically means he works for corporate, so he's really not a part of our family. Also, he's divorced, so he's really not a part of his family. (laughs) Horrible. He says, uh, no one asked you anything ever, so whomever's name is Toby, why don't you take a letter opener and stick it in your skull? And here's the last one. Here's my personal favorite. He says, if I had a gun with two bullets and I was in a room with Hitler, Bin Laden, and Toby, I would shoot Toby twice. (laughs) Just awful. Um, But here's why I read that. If you are in Christ, if you're a Christian, that is how Satan feels about you. That's how Satan feels about you. And so here's the reality. If you're a Christian, you're in a war. If you are a Christian tonight, you are in a war. And so let me, before we kind of look at the nature of the war, let me just at least stop right now and say this. I know that that is really, it's kind of sobering if you think about it. (coughs) Excuse me. But I, I, I think it's also pretty encouraging. Because remember at the beginning of the book of Revelation... John says, I've written this, I've given this to you, not to like freak you out and to spook you. I've given this to you to encourage you. This should be encouraging to know that your struggles are proof of the fact that you're spiritually alive. I don't know if you're anything like me, but but you can have this thought to say, a real Christian shouldn't be struggling like I am. Like I should be farther along like, I should be making more progress than I am right now. And, and those thoughts can just sort of bury you into thinking, like, struggle is abnormal. But what this is saying is that struggle, warfare, is the normal Christian life. Like, the, the fact that things are hard for you, the fact that you're waking up and it feels like there's a, you're in a dogfight for your soul, that's the normal Christian life. That's, that's not... That's not proof that you're doing something wrong or that you're screwing up. That's proof that you're spiritually alive. And conversely, there's a warning here that if you are walking through life and you're like, man, everything's great. I've got no problems. I'm good. I feel like this is kind of awesome. Maybe that's proof of the fact that you're spiritually dead. But think about it like this. Think about what a fever is. (coughs) A fever 
is your body's immune system responding and fighting off some virus or something that's trying to attack it. So even though a fever feels awful, you've got the chills, you're sweating, you're aching, it's just horrible. A fever is indicative of the fact that there's a fight going. There's, there's a war happening. But what happens if something, some virus or something is trying to attack you and your immune system doesn't respond and there is no fever? What is that? that? That shows you that you're dead. The fact that there's a struggle, if you are struggling, if you came in here tonight and like, I'm struggling, I'm fighting to believe, I'm fighting to believe that Jesus is real. Welcome to the normal Christian life. The Christian life is war. That's the reality of it. But, but what does this war actually look like? And here's where we've got to get into the second thing, the nature of it. And, and to get into the nature of the war, this is where I think this passage is so helpful. Because it shows you two of the ways that Satan attacks and assaults Christians. There's lots of different schemes and things that he has, but this passage gives you two. And so I want to look at each of these one at a time because it's really worth giving some attention to it. The first sort of weapon in Satan's arsenal is deception. In fact, the very word devil comes from the Greek word diabolos, which is the noun form of the verb to lie. His very name means liar. In John, uh, the Gospel of John, he is referred to as the father of lies. And even here in this passage, if you look at verse 9, he's described as the deceiver of the whole world. So what does this look like? This, this looks like Satan basically smuggling in thoughts and feelings into your head to get you and to trick you into believing things that aren't true. And think about it. What makes a really good liar? A liar is not someone that just flat out tells you a lie. A, lie, a, a good liar is someone that tells a lot of truth and just sort of bends it a little bit. Tells you a lot of things that are right and then sort of smuggles in something that's wrong. You know... Satan doesn't come to you on a Harley, in other words. He doesn't come to you on a Harley in a leather jacket all tatted up saying, curse God, worship me, and I'll make you rich. He comes to you, he's way more crafty, way more manipulative. He's more like uh, Frank Underwood on House of Cards. So here's what, here's what this would look like practically. And here's what this does look like practically. Uh, let's say um, you wake up and you uh, got your cup of coffee and you sit down to read your Bible and to pray, because you're like, I know I should do this, I want to do this, I'm not good at this, but I want to I do this, I want to connect with God. And so you close your eyes to pray, and as you close your eyes, about four seconds later, flooded into your head comes that to-do list. Like, man, i got a lot of stuff i got to do today, I'm really behind, I really feel like I just can't get on top of all of my work. You know, God does want me to uh, be excellent, like do, do, do well in my work. And these voices keep coming in where you're just like, you know what? Prayer is too important of a thing to do while you're distracted. So here's what I'm going to do. I, I'm going I'm to get up and I'm going I'm to set this aside for now, just for now. But I'm going I'm to get through my work. I'm going to pound it out today. And I'm going to do this. I'm going to be right back here on the couch with my coffee, my Bible, first thing tomorrow morning. And you string enough of those days together and you've been duped. Or here's another option. Here's, a, here's another way that this looks. is um, You begin to notice when other people do things that you wouldn't do. You know, you, you see someone on your hall and you're like, man, there is no way I would ever waste that much time playing video games. Like, I would never do that. Or you see somebody at the party and you're like, I would never have that much to drink. See someone in your sorority, I would never go that far with guys like she does. And there's that voice that kind of creeps in that says, and you're better than them. 
you, sure, you're not perfect. You've got problems, but you would never do that. And Satan starts to kind of gently blow on the embers of your self-righteousness. And you're believing the lies. But here's, here's sort of one last way that this could look. is um, The voice comes in and says, you know, God does want you to be happy. God wants you to connect with someone romantically and wants you to find someone that you really love and don't know what's going on out there, but hope we're safe. And um, uh, lock the doors. Um, God really does want you to connect with someone that you love and probably the best way to express your love for that person, your, your feelings for that person is to, is to show that uh, physically. Now, sure, sex is, sex is wrong, sex is reserved for marriage, but we're not talking about sex here. We're just talking about doing some things sexually. But after all, it's just two people. It's consensual. Who does it hurt? can't hurt anyone. And you believe the lies. And if you start believing the lies like that, those little whispers that kind of creep in, he's playing you. You've been played. That's the first tool in his tool belt, deception. But look at the second one. The second weapon in Satan's arsenal is accusation. The literal word Satan in Hebrew means accuser. And you see it show up in verse 10 of the passage. He's described as the accuser of the brothers who accuses them day and night before God. And so the image is of this courtroom where God is the judge. You're on trial. God is the judge, you're on trial, and and Satan is the prosecutor that is pointing out all of the evidence against you. God, look at exhibit A, here's why they're guilty. Look at exhibit B, here's why they're guilty. He's accusing you in front of God. And this takes a lot of different forms practically too. One way that this would work in your own life is um, where you get tricked into obsessing about something that you've done in the past that you regret. Like, I did this thing in the past... And it did some damage to some people, and the damage can't be undone. Or maybe the damage has been done against you. Somebody did something to you, and you feel like the damage has been done. There's, there's sin that has been accounted for. There's sin that has been done that cannot be redeemed, and that is the voice of accusation. Or another form that it could look is to say, I have these feelings, I have these desires, I have these impulses. And the voice of accusation comes in and says, and a real Christian wouldn't have that. A real Christian wouldn't struggle like that. A real Christian wouldn't desire and have those sort of fantasies and those sort of sexual impulses like you have. That's the voice of accusation. Or really, probably the, the, the number one way that this works is you know, you really do blow it. You do something stupid, you sin, you you there's some failure that you do, and you just feel horrible afterward, and the voice comes in and says, Man, I'm the worst. I am the worst. How can I call myself a Christian when, I, when I've done that, when I just did that? And you just bury on the guilt and the shame. And then that voice comes in and says, okay, sure, yeah, get dressed up and go to RUF. Yeah, and go to, go to church in the morning. But uh, you know and I know that you're a fraud. How can you worship God out in public in front of everybody when you know what you did with your body? How can you worship God when, and try to love your sorority sisters or try to love the people in your hall when, when they saw what you did last weekend? You're a hypocrite. Voice of accusation. And sometimes I think what Satan does is he does kind of this one-two combo where he starts with accusation. You're the worst. How can you call yourself a Christian? But then the deception comes in where Satan kind of whispers these lies and says, okay, you know what? 
you want to get back in good with God, you want to get back in good with God's good graces, here's what you need to do. You really need to start picking it up spiritually. You need to double down your efforts. So here's, let's get a game plan. We're going we're gonna to wake up in the morning every day and we're going to pray. And we're going to read our Bible. And we're going to get involved with a small group. And we're going to kind of do a leadership sort of thing with the ministry. We're going to start going to church every single week. And we've got to buy a journal and start journaling. And so you start doing all of that. You start stacking up the laws. And then what inevitably happens is that you fail. And you come crashing and burning. And there you are with all of this guilt and all of this shame again. And the pattern repeats. I got to pick it up. I got to pick it up. I got to do more. I got to do more to get back in good with God's good graces. And you stack up the laws. And you stack up the laws. Inevitably, you crash, shame, law, crash, shame, law. And what inevitably happens is that you start to associate God as a taskmaster. And you burn out. And you associate God with guilt and with disappointment. And that's what Satan wants. You see, what he, you see how he did? Like, all those things are true. Believing the Bible is, like, reading the Bible and praying, doing all that stuff is good. But the twist is, do all this stuff to get back in good with God. And he's got you. And so this is why, in verse 15, the dragon is described as pouring this river out of his mouth to sweep away the church, to drown the church out in deception and accusation. But the nature of a war is you not just taking fire. Warfare is you fighting back. And the great hope, the great confidence is that Satan is defeated. He's fighting a losing battle. And so we can fight with real confidence. And so here's what I want to do with the rest of our time. I want to show you how you fight against these two things from the passage. So how do you fight against deception? How do you fight against those lies? Look back at the passage, verse 11. And they conquered him by the blood of the lamb and by the word of their testimony. Verse 17, the dragon goes off to make war on the rest of her offspring, on those who keep the commandments of God and hold to the testimony of Jesus. Tells you the word, the commandments of God, the testimony of Jesus. What is this talking about? It's talking about the Bible. This is basically saying that the way Christians fight against the lies of Satan is with the truth of God's word. In verses 6 and 14, it says that the church is nourished by the Lord. How does the Lord nourish his people? He nourishes them by his word. You know, I heard this recently. I thought it was pretty fascinating. You know the way that they train federal agents to detect counterfeit money? They don't train them into spotting all the different kind of counterfeit types of cash out there. What they do is they force them to really study what a genuine, real, like authentic dollar bill looks like. Because when you're so acquainted with the real deal, with how it feels, the texture of it, how it smells, how it, you know, how it looks, you can, even if a, a, a counterfeit comes and you can't exactly identify why this is fake, you can just sort of sense it intuitively. You know that it's fake because you're so acquainted with the real deal. The way that you can spot the lies of Satan is when you are so immersed and when you so know the word of God. So when that impulse comes in and and wants to trick you into believing that you're awesome and you're better than those people, the word of God comes in and says, whoa, 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 whoa. The Bible tells me I'm a sinner saved by grace. That can't be true that I'm better than them. Or when that thought comes in to say, sin is really not that big of a deal, the word of God comes in and says, whoa, no, it's a huge deal. It's toxic. It's destructive. It put Jesus on a cross. This can't be the real deal. 
when the Word of God is just in you, you can spot Satan's lies when they come up. And so a real practical application is, I think you really should be committed to knowing the Word of God. To get in front of it, to be committed to getting in front of it regularly, personally, and corporately. Like this. And this isn't because this is like the you be a good little Christian and go read your Bible sort of thing. This is a you're in war and if you don't have a weapon, how are you expecting to survive? That's the first way that you fend off and you fight against the lies and the deception of Satan. Here's the last one. I'll end with this. How do you fight against accusation? Look at verse 11. They have conquered him by the blood of the Lamb. The blood of Jesus is how you fight off the voices of accusation. So here's the courtroom. There you are on trial. And here is Satan sort of pointing at exhibit A and B and C to say, look, God, they're guilty. Look, they have been looking at porn. Look, she has been gossiping. Look, they keep thinking those terrible thoughts. Look, they're, they're not spending their money in the right way. Look, they keep screwing up with food and with drink and with sex. Look, they keep telling lies. Look, they can't get it together. They point to, he points to everything and says, God, look, they are guilty. And if you are a Christian, what you can do in that moment when the voices of accusation come in and say, how can you call yourself a Christian when fill in the blank? You can say, you know what? All of that is true. I'm not going to deny it. All of that is true. But I have a Savior that has paid for all of that stuff with his own blood. And so there is nothing that you can say to condemn me in God's sight. And you know what, Satan? There are a lot of other things that you're not even mentioning that I'm not even aware of that you could point to that would be true too, and Jesus has paid for those too. His blood frees me from the voices of your accusation. And what that does is the voices of Satan, the voices of your own screwed up conscience, and the voices of anyone else can no longer condemn you. Why? Because there is no condemnation for those that are in Christ Jesus. And actually, the the sweet spot of it all is that when the accusation comes, you can actually use that to to backfire in his face. Because when accusation comes to you, you can convert that into ammunition that will fuel your fire for worship. Because here's how it works. The more you see your sin, the more you see how gracious and good the Lord is. So before you thought, okay, my sin was this big, and I thought his grace was this big. But when Satan points out all this other stuff, you see, good grief, my sin is this big. And what, what does that mean? That means his love for me is that much bigger than I thought it was. Accusation then, filtered through the gospel, gets, gets, it plunges you deeper to, into an experience of God's love for you. Rather than dragging you into a pit of shame, it drags you into worship. But you've got to have the gospel. You've got to know how to fight the voices of accusation and the voices of deception. It's the word, it's the gospel, it's Jesus. And so let me end by saying this. Yes, absolutely, the devil is real. And yes, absolutely, the war is real. But the gospel is real too. And so the question I want to leave you with tonight is this. Are you fighting? Are you fighting or are you at peace? Because if you are at peace with sin... You're spiritually dead. But if you are struggling and fighting against it, then be encouraged. Because that means you're alive. And you're on a <laughs> you're on the side that is one. 
are you fighting? Let me pray.